Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Our teaching text today is from Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Come, Holy Spirit. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, Everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Good afternoon. So good to see you. You're so welcome. If you are joining us uh, on the other side of a screen, you better have a good reason or you're in trouble. Um, but you are really welcome. If we haven't met before, uh, my name is Andy. I'm the senior pastor here. And um, there's a couple of things I, I want to just talk about before we jump into uh, this afternoon's teaching. Just to let you know that our uh, board of trustees and our senior leadership team have been meeting together fairly regularly. We're at least talking daily about everything to do with uh, coronavirus and uh, how we respond to that. And uh, hopefully you've seen Uh, our new protocols and things on the website and all that sort of stuff and all the different kind of bits and uh, pieces. But just to say that we do know that this is a very uh, quickly changing situation. And so we expect to be communicating, if not daily, fairly regularly with all of you as as church in terms of what we're doing and what's uh, still happening and what's not happening and all that sort of stuff. 
So just to, to say, pay attention, please, to your email inboxes, to social media feeds, uh, and to our website. We will keep that as up-to-date as we possibly can. But just to kind of emphasize, in, in the midst of what is a truly crazy moment in the world, uh, our responsibility to uh, not just come to church, uh, but to be the church is, uh, is really, really important. And I, I want to read you... Um, some words from the sociologist Rodney Stark that he, he wrote about in his book called The Rise of Christianity. He looked at the plagues of uh, the year 165 and 251 AD in Rome, and he points out that life in the city was one of disease and misery and fear. He says that it provided Christians with the opportunity not only to imagine a better world in the distant future, but also solutions for present day problems. This posture of sacrificial action was a demonstrated apologetic for the world around them, a testament of living out of a different story. May this be a vision for how we can respond in love to one another and to the city and our communities. And may we as a church be the people who know and exhibit God's perfect love casting out all fear. This is an incredible moment for us as church to be the church wherever we find ourselves and to uh, live out a different story. If you've been tracking with us over uh, this series, I've been asking that question for weeks now. Is there anything different going on in our lives? This is a wonderful moment for us to demonstrate that all around us. And so uh, I do hope that in the midst of all of this, you're finding a way to uh, just offer your work colleagues, your family members, and everyone around you a different posture to what's going on. Just to let you know too that we will be um, uh, mobilizing uh, as a community around some of this stuff as needs and opportunities and solutions present themselves. And uh, just to say, uh, as you're thinking about what's going on in your community, and as you're watching what's going on uh, around our city and this region, if there are solutions or ideas that you have please don't just assume that somebody else has thought of it. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, email us, uh, get in touch with us. Um, you know, we'd, we'd love to do that. But please prioritize those around you who are vulnerable and weak and in need, uh, those who are fearful, those who uh, do need to be reassured, those who will need some practical help and all that sort of stuff. Um, we... Uh, want to say that uh, house party tonight is on, half six to half seven. So if you're P6 to third year, I said this in the 9.30, I'm old. I don't know what the new way of talking about that is, but uh, you'll know. Uh, so P6 up to that kind of age group that's meeting, half six to half seven. Here, uh, Tuesday morning prayers are happening. So uh, new time this week of half past six in the big party room. So uh, if we've moved that forward because lots of you are like, actually uh, seven o'clock or half seven is too late for us to get in on the way to work. So... Um, I know some students in the room are going, <laughs> half seven is too late. What world do you live in? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, we're moving prayers to half six. Uh, so they'll be uh, in the big party uh, room across the foyer. And we'd love you to gather uh, to pray uh, this, this Tuesday morning. 
Um, and also, finally, just to say that uh, we will be taking an offering at the end of the service this morning, so we won't be passing buckets around. There, will, there are some ways to give on here, but I, I just want to highlight something really practical. Well, two things, two practical things. One is that, in case you probably didn't know this, but um, we get somewhere between £2,500 and £3,000 a month in Sunday offerings. So we do expect uh, potentially this week or next week that Sunday gatherings will be canceled, uh, which does have a fairly major impact on practically just our budget of keeping things running. So if you normally give on a Sunday in the bucket and you've never considered uh, giving online, can I really encourage you to do that over the next little while? It'll just really help us to keep paying bills and all that sort of stuff. But the other thing we're really conscious of is that there are low-income families in our community that it's very possible uh, the result of coronavirus is going to move them from low income to no income. And uh, we, we expect to be responding to that as a community. And so if you're here, and I know there are lots of you here who um, have slightly more wealth than some of the rest of us, uh, there will be ways for us to kind of try and help those types of people in our community. And so please pay attention to uh, your email inboxes and all of that sort of stuff. Please be praying about in a moment where the world has gone mad on selfish protection, this is a moment for us to lean into generosity. It's one of the ways that we, we posture ourselves differently as uh, when everyone reaches for, I need to protect myself, that we actually intentionally lean into to giving and being more generous. And so I'd love you to be talking to Jesus about that and get in touch with us about that, and uh, we will help facilitate that. So, wonderful. Uh, we are coming to the end of this great sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and uh, 7. And before I uh, jump into this morning's uh, teaching, uh, maybe we'll pray together. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come now. Speak to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. It's called party people for a reason. Um, wonderful. So we're coming to the end of this sermon. Like I said, Jesus is teaching on what life looks like when we learn how to live in the kingdom of God. It's funny, uh, we, we talk about this all the time here, that our definition of the kingdom of God is the place where what God wants happens. And what Jesus is helping those listen to him engage with and understand is that the place where what God wants happens can be your life, like the inner landscape of your life, the world of your thoughts and emotions, the, the world of your subconscious, the things that can happen in you that you don't have to attempt to conjure or, or do, that uh, that world can be a place where what God wants happens. And the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus illustrating that. And remember, there are two questions this whole sermon is built around. At the beginning of it, Jesus looks at those that are following him. And he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. And you are the light of the world. And then he goes on to unpack 
How does salt behave and what does light look like? That's what this sermon really is, Jesus attempting to illustrate. What does the inner landscape and behavior, what are the thoughts and attitudes of salt and light behave and look like? That's what he is doing here. And he begins the end of his sermon with a similar idea or question. Verse 13, by the way, we have put the Bibles away. Um, so that's all coronavirus protocols. Uh, but if we do get to keep gathering publicly for a couple of weeks, bring your own Bible. It's a good uh, discipline. It's a good habit. I don't know if you noticed August. My, <laughs> he can't really read yet. But uh, when Stu was reading, he brought his Bible to church this morning. He's sitting like this. And Stu's doing his thing. You know, it's so cute. Uh, anyway, um, but if you do have a phone uh, that's not going to distract you and you want to go to Matthew chapter 7, we're going to be uh, starting in verse 13. By all means, do that. If you did, bring a Bible with you. Uh, you can open it. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 13, uh, Jesus says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. One of the, the tricky things with the scriptures is uh, Jesus was genius at metaphors that made sense to the culture around him. So whenever he taught and he said things, the people around him would have instantly got his metaphors. Unfortunately, we live 2,000 years later, and unless you're a farmer, gets don't make a ton of sense to you, right? Like we, this, this metaphor gets, it gets a little bit lost on us. I mean, we get some idea of big and small, wide and narrow, but what's Jesus really meaning here? The, the kind of punch of this metaphor is slightly lost on us. You see, those that were living uh, in Jesus' time, listening to this uh, metaphor, totally understood that every major town or city had loads of different ways of getting into it. There was big gates and small gates, and they knew that the big gates were where you went if you were in a hurry. That as you approached a city, the, the main gate, the wide gate, was the, was the quickest way to get in. And as you approached, maybe as you were coming into the city in the morning or as you were leaving in the evening, there would have been crowds passing through that wide gate. There would have been animals and carts. There would have been traders and business people and families, loads of people going about their day. And as you approached, you could basically just kind of slip into the crowd and be carried along in the direction that it was going. These gates would have had a sense of flow to them. And as you got caught into that flow, you would have just been kind of carried along. You ever been in, uh, on the M1 heading south in rush hour? That's the wide gate. You just turn your brain off. You're crawling along. The only thing really you need to pay attention to is the brake lights in front of you. Everybody heading the same direction and you have virtually no choices other than to continue where everyone's going. You ever had that moment where you know, you're, you're coming off the West Link and you're in your outside lane and you've totally tuned out because everything's just crawling along and you totally forget that you're supposed to get off at Dunmurray, which is three lanes that way. And then you've got to be that guy, you know? that everyone has to stop. Why does that happen? Because whenever we're there, we just go with the flow. We just disengage our brains and we go where everyone else is going. That's the wide gate. No thought needed, just carried along like a lemming, the same direction as everyone else. But there were also other gates, other ways into these cities and 
towns. Gates that were much narrower, gates that had steep slopes and steps, gates that had narrow sides, gates that were awkward and inconvenient, gates that were slow. You had to wait your turn. You couldn't all go at the same time. The kind of gates that were inconvenient to pass through, the kind of gates that were impossible to get through quickly. Any of you ever driven in the wilds of Donegal or Connemara? That's like, that's like narrow gate territory. We regularly have friends visiting from the States and uh, if they've rented a car and been touring around Ireland, by the time they get to us, I often feel like I need a trauma counselor on hand. As they kind of fall out of their car with pale faces and sweat on their foreheads with, how on earth do you drive in this country? And if they've done really well, the rental car usually has a scratch or a ding on it. If they've had a slightly more traumatic time and this has happened, the wing mirror's hanging off. And I, I love the kind of conversations that ensue because the reality is there are plenty of parts of this wonderful place to live that have roads that aren't wide enough for two cars, but completely permit people to travel in both directions. And people that aren't from here get on these roads and they can't help but go, did I miss the fact that this was a one-way street? No, no, you didn't. You just haven't quite learned the art of like getting into a ditch without your car getting damaged. It's a real skill. Most of us that have grown up here, or at least grown up in the countryside, know exactly how to do it. You know how to judge there's a gate coming up and I'll probably be able to get half my car into that gateway while someone else kind of comes past me. Driving in proper rural Ireland is impossible to do quickly. Tractors, sheep, blind corners, hedges, every minute, at least if you're sensible, requires attention and focus, right? It can take two hours to travel a distance that could take half the time on a better road. Rush hour versus rural Ireland. Wide gates, narrow gates. This is what Jesus is trying to help those that are listening to him understand about how they're doing their life. What he's saying is incredibly potent. He's saying there is a way of doing life that doesn't require much from you at all. There is a way of ordering and operating in your life that doesn't require much critical thought, much reflection or intention. You just get onto the M1 and you go with the flow. But look at verse 14. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There's a way of doing life that doesn't require much from you. It's the way most of the world operates, but it doesn't lead you into life. The former chief rabbi to the Commonwealth, Jonathan Sachs, famously said, this is one of my favorite quotes, Famously said, only dead fish go with the flow. Only dead fish go with the flow. One of the metrics of kingdom life, one of the ways to tell if the flourishing whole life 
that comes living in the kingdom of God, one of the ways to tell if that's happening in you is answering this question. Is there any difference between what is going on in you and what is going on around you? Is there any difference to what is going on in you to what is going on around you? And this cultural moment we are living in is a wonderful time to stop and ask that question. Is there anything different happening in my life to what's happening around my life? When the world panics, are we able to be at peace? When the world rages, are we able to forgive? And when the world grabs, are we able to give? Is there anything different going on? Jesus is saying life in his kingdom is like driving in rural Ireland. It's impossible to do without attention and it's impossible to do without intention. So what's getting your attention and what are you intentionally giving yourself to? At the risk of making the metaphor overreach, he goes further to say, be careful because as you get on these roads, some of the road signs are wrong. That actually is rural Ireland. In verse 15, Jesus starts talking about the prophetic wolf in sheep's clothing, clothing and all of that kind of stuff. Why does he do that? Why does he go from gates and roads and going with the flow or living with intention to then watch out for false prophets? The two, in one way, don't really seem to connect. It's a bit jarring. But again, he knows what he's doing. What he's saying here is, as you begin to order your life, as you begin to be attentive and live with intention, be really careful to the voices that you allow to influence you. What he's saying is that the voices that we allow to influence our life are like road signs. They have a destination attached to them. Do you know what that is? What voices influence your life? Whose voices influence your life? What opinions and attitudes are forming the trajectory or are uh, road signs in your navigation of this thing called life? What's getting your attention? And is it leading you further into the kingdom life that Jesus is making available to us or is it leading you into literal dead ends? That's what he's saying, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are voracious wolves. Jesus is saying when we get onto the narrow road, we need to be careful what signs we follow. Those listening to Jesus were very familiar with the idea of people claiming to speak the words of God who really weren't. False prophets are, again, not necessarily something we're overly familiar with. Just try that this week. The minute someone gives you advice you don't like, just say, false prophet, right? It doesn't really work, okay? Well, maybe it'll work, I don't know. Try and see, let me know. I don't think it'll work, but you know. Um, people listening to Jesus, though, were familiar with this idea, but there was one way, kind of, one way that was sort of agreed on how you discerned 
who the false prophets were. It's a really simple kind of way. It was basically wait and see. So if a prophet kind of arrived and said, God says this and then this is gonna happen, the way you kind of discerned was, all right, well, we'll wait and see if that happens. And if it happens, well, they were truthful. And if it doesn't, well, they were obviously a false prophet. That was kind of the prevailing wisdom of the day. Hard to exercise, though, if it's quite an urgent word, right? God says, move now. I'm gonna wait and see what happens if I don't. Oh no, they were right, I'm now in trouble, right? Jesus moves the goalposts here. He says, if you wanna see if someone is truthful, pay attention to their life. If you wanna figure out if that opinion or that piece of advice should be prioritized, look at the life that it's flowing out of. What kind of fruit is growing in the lives of the people that you listen to? It's really practical advice. It's something that we often, because we love the people that we do life with, we just disconnect from. And depending on the emotional maturity of the people that you do life from, some people are slightly more forthright with their road signs than others. You ever notice that? opinions that you didn't ask for that just get kind of thrust on you. And Jesus is saying, be careful. Pay attention to the lives that these things are flowing out of. We've been um, in a prophetic conference for the last couple of days with some dear friends over helping lead us through this. And I think it's maybe important uh, for me this morning to uh, just exercise some of that. So would you close your eyes for a second? I have a um, prophetic word that's been stirring in me all week that I think is pretty potent and I wanna, I wanna share it with you. Um, so Holy Spirit, we welcome you right now. If you're in your bedroom or your sofa, if you're around the table, just close your eyes. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you. And if you love Jesus and you're here this morning, this, I think, is a profound word from God. Here it comes. Everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. Why don't you open your eyes? Anticlimactic, eh? Right? Like, I was hoping for better than that, Andy, let's be honest. If you love Jesus, that's about as good a prophetic word as you're ever going to get. Now, it's not everything's going to be easy, there's going to be no struggle or pain, but the reality is if you love Jesus, everything in the end is going to be okay. Jesus is saying here that we have to pay attention to the atmosphere and the content of the words that we listen to, the vehicle and the word. And one of the things I notice around particularly slightly more immature prophetic people is that sometimes prophetic words can come with a, a fair degree of stress or sometimes even panic. 
And that's always a really good indicator to me that there's somebody that just needs to grow a bit more. There's a bit of immaturity on that because it's impossible to get around God and not get around an atmosphere of hope. Possible. It is impossible. You get close to God, hope rises. Unless, of course, you don't really don't like God, in which case you might have the opposite. But I'm assuming here we're like, we wanna hear what God says, we love Jesus, or we're trying to. You get around him, hope rises. And it's really, really important Jesus is saying that you don't just listen to the advice, but you pay attention to the atmosphere that that advice is flowing out of. When we get around Jesus, the fruit of getting around him is peace and an ability to be calm in the midst of storms. If you ever listen to uh, someone doing my kind of job who's prophesying to you a life without storms, run a million miles. They're not telling you the truth. Jesus was very clear. In this world, we'll have struggle. He promised in his word, Romans 8, that we would be able to access the inheritance that God has made available to Jesus if we are able to endure the sufferings that he did too. There are gonna be storms in our lives, but is there anything different going on within us to what's going on around us? Pay attention to the life that the words that you listen to flow out of. Jesus then goes on to say something pretty sobering, verse 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. Experiment, right? Imagine I brought somebody up here this morning, this afternoon, and they said, hi, everybody, my name's whatever, and then the first thing they did was prophesy over somebody the most accurate prophetic word you've ever heard. Like they said, I know your address and your phone number, and here's some things I think God says to you. And then they looked over here, and somebody was really sick, right? Maybe they had a problem with their arm, and they couldn't straighten their arm, right? So then they say, right arm over there, be healed, and then the person can do this, right? And then they looked at somebody over here and said, you need loads of money, I'm gonna pray, and all this money appears in the sky and falls on them. And then they looked at William and said, he's dead definitely got a demon, cast out the demon, and William is set free, right? All of us would go, that is the person most close to Jesus I have ever seen in my life. And Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. The ability to do that says nothing to their relationship with me. Pay attention to the vehicle that the advice or words that you're allowing to influence your life flow out of. Listen, all of those things we believe in. You've heard us teaching them. You've seen us demonstrate some of them. We believe in that stuff. But Jesus is saying, don't be deceived by someone's ability to demonstrate power outwardly. Pay attention to what's going on in their life inwardly. 
One, one of the things that I notice in young adults often that get fired up for Jesus and get around this idea that we get invited by Jesus to partner with him in making his kingdom real in the world is all of a sudden they go, wow, I get to actually join him in healing people and seeing the miraculous and prophesying and all that sort of stuff. Wow, I'm in. Go, 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 go. And yet they never take things like the Sermon on the Mount seriously. And the inner landscape of their life doesn't actually get touched by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what often happens is they end up burned out and disillusioned because their ability to partner with God in doing miracles and seeing healing never actually helps them deal with their own insecurities or anxiety. Jesus is saying, knowing me intimately and inwardly will do way more for your life than any ability to exercise or demonstrate my power. Now, the reality is, as we get to know him inwardly and intimately, we do get to demonstrate his power. But don't confuse the two and don't think that power equals intimacy. They're not, they are not the same. Verse 24, let's keep moving. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The only thing Jesus is saying, the only thing that matters in our lives is do we do what he says? It's, it's really simple. It's quite hard. But it's really simple. Do we do you do what he says? If you want a fun, challenging exercise this week, just read back over Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then ask yourself, am I doing what he says? Am I doing what he says? And loving those people that are hard to love, freely offering forgiveness? Am I being ruthless about what gets my attention? Am I doing what he says? Again, let me play with you for a little minute. One of the things I get to do all the time is sit with people who are trying to follow Jesus, right? And they often have questions about why they find that difficult. Um, one of the things I find really difficult whenever I'm in that conversation is when people are quite honest with me about uh, not wanting to do what Jesus says, but wanting to follow Jesus. Or it's, not, it's really not working, Andy. And I'm like, well, what do you think God's saying to you? Well, he sent me, told me to do this, but I was too scared, so I didn't do it. I mean, I have, no, I have no solutions for that, right? It's like if you want to learn how to live into the radical, abundant, life-giving kingdom of God in your life, then you have to learn how to do what he says. So if that means being generous, if that means taking a risk, if that means forgiving someone, if that means saying sorry, If you want his life, you have to do what he says. It's the ultimate act of trust and faith that I will build my life on what you say, even if it doesn't make any sense to me. That's why we say being a Christian is allowing Jesus to be the boss of your life. Of course he wants to be our friend, 
Of course there's help and comfort and all that sort of stuff. But Christianity doesn't work if you have any other posture to Jesus other than be my boss. I want to do what you say. Like driving in Donegal, doing what he says takes attention. It takes intention. And it's impossible to do without a huge amount of reflection and in community. But look what happens in verse 25 when we do. And this is what is at stake at the moment in the world that we live in. The rains come down, the streams rise, the winds blow and beat against our houses, yet they do not fall. The winds blow and beat against our houses, yet they do not fall because they have their foundation on a rock. All over the world right now, what people are building their lives on is getting exposed. Right now, in this moment, what your life is being built upon is being exposed. Storms are here. We are in the middle of and about to step into one of the biggest cultural crises any of us have ever seen. That's just the reality. And it's in moments like these that we discover what we've built our life on. And it's in moments like these that the church actually gets to shine and be its most beautiful. There is a reason why the church thrives in cultural crises. That's true throughout her church history. In the midst of cultural crises, everywhere over the last 2,000 years, you find the church alive. Why? Because they tap into something different. Something can be going on inside that's different to what's going on outside. And it's beautiful. So what are you building your life on? Whose words create your priorities? Our community is desperate for houses that are gonna be able to stand through this thing. And not just stand in a stoic, we're just gonna survive. <laughs> but in a way that we are able to inhabit a non-anxious presence in the world. In a way that says, Whilst everything's going crazy out there, I can be okay in here. And the only way we get there, the only way we get there is by building our lives on the presence and the words of Jesus. James, why don't you guys come back up? Building your life on the rock 
I, I can't help but have this, uh, that old BB, I didn't go to BB, I was a scout growing up, but you know that old BB song, Will Your Anchor Hold? This is that time. It stops being a cheesy song and becomes a lived reality. That's what Jesus is saying here. What's anchoring your life? Is it him and his words? Or is it something that's about to fall down? But what does it mean for us to do that? Really quickly, I just want to apply this. Um, building your life on the rock doesn't mean come to church. Shock. Come to church. We're going to try and keep doing this for as long as we can. But that's not what building your life on the rock means. It doesn't mean reading your Bible. Shock. Building your life on the rock means doing what Jesus said. It's impossible to come to church. It's impossible to memorize the whole flipping Bible and still not do what he says. Building our lives. Building our lives on the rock looks like doing what Jesus said. And when we do that, everything changes. It's game set and match for our fears and anxieties, for all of the stress. It's like build your life on Jesus. And you get to go grab a pillow and fall asleep with him while the waves crash and the wind rages. If you're able, we stand. you to be able to answer that question right now but that's a really important thing for you to reflect on this week what is your life built on career money your reputation the way other people think or talk about you what's your life built on my uh, sense for all of us is there are certain foundations in our lives that aren't Jesus and the things that he says. I know that's true for me. And we've been reflecting through this series about repentance and how repentance is a freedom word. It's not a shame word. It's not a heavy word. Repentance is a freedom word. It's a life word. Repentance is us changing direction, realigning with the kingdom of God. And maybe uh, in this moment this afternoon, if you're at home, if you're here, this is a moment of repentance for you to recognize, Jesus, there are things in my life that I'm building it on that, that aren't gonna stand. And I wanna repent of that and I wanna invite you to come and help me to build my life on your presence and the things that you're saying. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you again. We welcome you. Come, come. And Lord, in your gentle and yet powerful way, would you convict us of the things that have taken priority over your presence and your word in our lives? 
we welcome you to come. Help us to build our lives on the things that you've said. The band are gonna uh, lead us for a few minutes and um, we're not doing hands-on prayer ministry at the moment and you've seen our protocols. But that doesn't change the fact that the Lord is here by His Spirit. If you can't be here because of whatever reason, um, we've never done this before, but I hope you have a sense of the Lord's presence wherever you're watching this, in bed, on a sofa, around your dinner table, that the Lord is there. And so as the band lead us, would you just begin to do some business with Him? Open your heart, open your mind. If you need to find somewhere in the room to kneel down, if you want to sit down, if you want to sing along and worship, but just... Just recalibrate your life in this moment and invite him to come and help you to build your life on foundations that'll stand. Let's worship together.